House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Robert McGinnis, we have here Alliance of Evil. Um, thanks for being with us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's glad to be with you. So, um, now, Bob, first of all, let's, 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 for the listeners that don't know you, uh, who are you in brief, and, and kind of what's your history with uh, politics and writing and things like that? Okay. 18 years old, I went to the United States Military Academy at West Point, graduated four years later, uh, spent a year on the demilitarized zone in Korea, came back, served in uh, another infantry division, uh, ended up in Europe, uh, spent several years in the Iron Curtain, uh, where they divided East and West Germany. Um, I've been the chief for leadership at the infantry school, uh, served in Alaska, served all over. Retired out of the Pentagon as an inspector general, uh, mm. worked at the um, Family Research Council as their vice president for policy for nine years, came back to the Pentagon where I continue to be, uh, was about an hour ago, and I run a team of international specialists. I happen to be one of the experts on security cooperation, so I work with armies all over the world. And my writing, I've been a columnist a couple of times. I have uh, five books published, um, and of course I've done a lot of broadcast media over the years, and I'm speaking to you from Northern Virginia. Well, we're glad to have you in L.A., um, yeah, my pleasure. Well, let's see. And and uh, well, and Kevin, you must be impressed going from McDonald's yeah. to. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Let's, so, yeah. what what is your biggest concern? Like when you write books like Alliance of Evil, and and you're talking um, in general really about a new type of Cold War, a new type of relationship that's going on between the major powers in the world so so like china russia um, the united right. states so when you when you write this of course you don't all know what you're writing until you write it but going into it what was your thinking process well keep in mind that uh, i gave you a brief bio in which i participated in a, a couple of uh, very tense locations, plus having traveled to China and the Soviet Union, I saw firsthand you know, what the Cold War, the old Cold War, was all about. And you know, people of my vintage recall you know, ducking under school desks or being evacuated mm -hmm. from schools, the so-called fallout shelters, and afraid we were going to become nuclear dust at any moment because of crises in Cuba or you, know, you name it. And it was a, a relief. I think off of the you know the consciences of millions of people around the world when the Soviet Union dissolved on the 25th of December 1991 and the hammer and sickle was lowered and the Russian Federation under Boris Yeltsin was stood up. Uh, but unfortunately, um, I think we made some tragic mistakes, and as a direct result, uh, the bear has reemerged under the likes of Vladimir Putin, who's just started his third term as president, and if he wanted to, he could probably be president for life. 
Um, so I'm seeing a reemergence of a lot of indicators that I saw over a career in uniform and certainly over the last 25 years. And, of course, I've seen you know, China close up and uh, the same things, except China tends to be the long-term threat, whereas Russia is a short-term threat, um, but a very serious one. When you say a series of mistakes uh, during the uh, Cold War, is that would the series of mistakes really be classified as perhaps um, um, something that we didn't take advantage of at the time? Is it a missed opportunity? No, or it is something a we didn't take serious. No, I think it is a missed opportunity. You know, we we could have done a heck of a lot more than we did, and. You know, we we could have brought them in uh, to the the Western fold and encouraged them, you know, much more. You know, Bush had set you know Yel or you know, Yeltsin down at Camp David and offered up some money uh, just to kind of you know, tie them over until they could get something working. But you know, we saw an opportunity to really transform that nation and I think that uh, we failed to you know it was a black swan event and we just you know turned a blind eye when we could have you know changed a arch enemy into one of our best friends and so today you know, they're incredibly suspicious of NATO in fact they asked to be join NATO and we of course said no um, they asked to do a host of things so when they start to take over two provinces in Georgia, when they take over Crimea, when they, you know, contest us as they did this week in the Black Sea with SU-35s, or they do the same thing in the northern Atlantic. You know, Admiral Richardson, who is the chief naval operations, said uh, repeatedly over the last couple of months that, you know, we're really in the fourth battle of the Atlantic. The first battle was World War One. Second is World War Two. The third one was during the old Cold War, and this one, with modern submarines, a growing fleet of Russian-capable, and not only submarines but cruising uh, vehicles. You know, they're contesting the same territory. Why we didn't learn a long time ago to turn this thing off and help that nation to, you know, join the West? I don't know, but we failed, and so we're paying a. Uh, a pretty high dividend as a direct result. But qu quite honestly, Robert, though it, at the time it seemed like they were willing to cooperate with this, but they weren't right. willing to 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 cross a certain line. They wanted to keep their beliefs, they wanted to keep their culture, they wanted to keep their type of government. But uh, we're willing to work with you. We'll, we'll shake hands on this, but we're keeping this over here. They were only willing to go so far. I well, I really think that trust. we put a earnest effort into it. Yeah, well, no, you're right. It's because of trust. You know, you can't all of a sudden go from arch enemies overnight to bosom buddies. And that's, you know, why we had to do it incrementally. But we didn't have a strategy, a vision to tr help transform that very large uh, country, which was armed to the teeth, and all of a sudden ran into some very serious financial and ideological problems and help to nurture it in a direction that was favorable to us. Uh, had we done that, I think that um, things would have turned out very differently. Uh, but that's hindsight, which is always twenty twenty. But you know, we face that. And and I'll, let me juxtapose this though. Now, on the very day, hammer and sickle was lowered in Moscow. You know, the leader in China said that war has ended. The war with us has just begun. In other words, mm -hmm. the Chinese leader 
at the time looked to the United States and says, we are essentially at war with you. Now, we didn't recognize that, but if you begin to look over the subsequent decades, you begin to see not only their strategy, their political fodder, uh, but also their behavior, and especially in the last five years, it's really been targeting everything that we do, not only the military stuff, but economically, ideologically, sociologically, you name it. They have been very aggressive, and that's why when I call it a, a dual Cold War, you know, it really is a dual Cold War. We have, because of our containment strategy, have foisted, you know, Moscow and Beijing into one another's arms. And, you know, we've just seen, you know, another meeting between Putin and Xi. We've seen their defense ministers meet almost every month. And the analysis by a whole host of people that are beginning to say, yeah, this does smell, look, and it really seems like a new Cold War. Even though, yeah, admittedly, the chairman of Joint Chiefs, uh, General Dunford, you know, said yesterday at Duke University in a speech, he said, you know, I really don't think this is a new Cold War. Uh, I think he's dead wrong because I don't think he's looking at all the indicators. But a lot of other people yeah, all over the world, to include the Russians and the Chinese, are beginning to recognize that, yeah, this is something mm -hmm. similar to what we've seen before. How, uh, how do we, but when you say contained, were you meaning things like... Um, Containment for the U.S. Do you mean kind of like the nationalist idea? You know how 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 uh, Trump is operating his foreign affairs at this time, um, and 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 to top that off, how is the, the the Russian involvement in so many different parts of the American, you know, elections and and all of this stuff? Isn't that playing us again in a different way? Oh yeah, that's that's a subterfuge that um, Vladimir Putin. He's, you know, he's a former KGB. He understands how to do dark stuff, and he's incredibly effective at it. Uh, and he's got a lot of apparatus, you know, that are really working in a way that are causing, uh, you know, us to have internal dissidents. Um, he, you know, he hires this these organizations which I write about in Alliance of Evil, you know, the hacking groups. Uh, he hired he he, he puts some of his Spetsnaz special forces people uh, into certain places to stir up the crowds. He trains people in, in from the West and sends them back uh, to become involved in militias and the like. So there are a host of things that they're doing. Incredible. It's it's not the same type of confrontation I knew on the fold of gap on the Iron Curtain, where we were facing thousands of T-62 Russian tanks and BMPs and the like. No, it's far more subtle but very, very ingenious on their part because they're using instruments of power, national power, in such a way uh, that it, it's really uh, frustrating for us to really focus. Uh, now, that doesn't say they don't have a fairly sophisticated and uh, They've taken advantage of all the technology that we have had and neglected over the years and have turned it on us. We've seen some phenomenal use of that in eastern Ukraine, and we've also seen some you know, very impressive tests uh, in Syria, whether they're cruise missiles or you know, from ships or off of submarines. And, of course, they've continued to modernize their nuclear force, and that's in part why John Bolton was over there a week ago 
uh, in Moscow talking to his counterpart and saying, you know, we're not going to we're not going to play your game. We're going to withdraw from the 1987 Intermediate Range Nuclear Force Treaty, the INF. And oh, by the way, we're thinking about uh, getting out of the New Start Treaty, which comes up for expiration in another year and a half. So, I mean, it's all over the map. You know, Putin is a very, very smart guy. He, you know, back on the March the 1st of this year, he was doing the State of the Nation address, much like we have State of the Union. Um, and he had as a backdrop these giant screens with all these simulations of modern weapons. And he said, yeah, you know, we can outdistance with uh, high, hypersonic weapons, with fifth generation fighters and this and that. We're doing just great. We're going to put the, the West on its toes. And, of course, that's rabble-rousing, but the fact is he is working on all of that, and that's, that's public knowledge. And so uh, Putin is just a very, very bright strategist that knows how to you know, bend our ear. And, you know, he did find a bit of a confrontation there with Trump because Trump, you know, he, he's not a pushover. He'll push back just like any uh, tough guy, and Putin kind of respects that. So it's an interesting back and forth that we're beginning to see geopolitically between those two nations, and of course the same thing with Xi. Uh, Xi, of course, was enshrined as the president for life, thanks to the 19th Congress a year ago, and of course the parliament, uh, which is rubber stamp. They said you can be president for life, much like Mao Zedong, and all the thoughts of President Xi are going to be enshrined, and, you know, we're going to, to celebrate you. And, of course, uh, his China Dream, his Belt and Road Strategy initiative all over the world, uh, they're beginning to pay off, and uh, we're paying attention, finally. Now, you, you, you've said a lot, and I'd like to back up and just give you an observation, just as, you know, the average Joe American. Um, it, it seems like we were so busy making friends with Russia that they were very, very content to let us do that. You know, sure, I will take all the focus during this Cold War. Meanwhile, China is in the background working very, very quietly in the shadows. Now, in the last, like you said, the last couple of years, it seems to be a sudden flip. We're willing to let Russia get away with, like you said, you know, Georgia, the Crimea, you know, their involvement in, in other unspoken wars. Now suddenly we're, wow, China, what the crap have you been doing in the background? Now we're beginning to discover all this. Was this by design? Well, it was by default, I think, quite frankly. You know, after 9-11... You know, we took our eyes off of, you know, these big threats, and we focused on um, you know, the Middle East, specifically North Africa, al-Qaeda, and eventually one thing morphed into another. We invented the war in Iraq, and then, of course, we've been engaged um, trying to civilize a 14th century country called Afghanistan, and, and we poured billions of dollars and a lot of blood in there. We still aren't out, not that we're going to get at any time soon, evidently. So, yes, we took our eyes off the ball. Uh, we became a, an irregular warfare type of modern military. Uh, that is uh, radically different from the types of things that we're talking about that Russia and China have been developing. Where we stopped, and we stopped investing, and we, we wholeheartedly endorsed this so-called war on terror. Uh, then, meanwhile, the Russians began to you know, get better, 
they still don't have a great economy, but they you know, over-invested in military technologies because they had a lot of smart people that were still you know, kicking around in the former Soviet Union that transferred into the arms industry, and you know, those that stayed in you know, Russia were back in business again. Uh, the Chinese did much the same. And, of course, they went to school on us. They've watched everything that we've done. You know, I mentioned General Dunford, you know, in his speech uh, the other day in Duke. And he said, look, they, they were so impressed, Russia and China, with how quickly we're able to organize and move forces and go to anywhere in the world. Uh, and so they, they went to school on us, and they've been able to develop technologies to counter absolutely everything that we have. Um, and, of course, you know, famously and rightly, uh, President Trump has said, you know, they steal on the order of $300 billion worth of intellectual property every year. And they do. And they're incredibly good uh, because of their way in which they have organized their spy networks, their hacking networks, uh, even you know, people that come to the United States that they are still tethered to home uh, back in China. Uh, they use these expatriates. Uh, in a very unique way. And the FBI directors acknowledge this, the CIA directors acknowledge this. Mm-hmm. This is you know, pretty common sense sorts of things. They're, they've just been able to uh, not only get well, but to begin to prosper in a way that has been to our detriment. Uh, all the while, we were captivated by these little wars in the Middle East uh, while these giants are beginning to emerge in a way that... Uh, really has us on the ropes. You know, now, let's let's tie this into prophecy, because if I'm understanding it, your philosophy, these things have to happen. And, and I've heard a lot of eschatologists or, or people who study prophecy mention Gog and Magog. Is that a, first of all, is that a fair comparison? Well, you know, it really depends upon how you read, you know, the prophecy and interpret it. You know, I, I have a friend by the name of Norm Heiser, and uh, he is a, a he studies and reads ancient literature, um, and he's also a theologian. And you know, he cautions us uh, not to you know, really believe that God encrypted, you know the scriptures that we have today in such a way as to, you know, really precisely point out modern countries. So in other words, there are a lot of people who will read, say, Ezekiel 38 and 39 or Revelation 12 and 16 and other scriptures and say, ah, that's China or that's Russia. Well, we don't know for certain. All we know is that in the context in which these scriptures were written, they were talking about a threat, and, and I believe that it, there will be a threat that will be profiled much as it says in Scripture. I just don't know that it's necessarily China and Russia. Now, uh, mm. you mentioned Gog and Magog. Well, you know, if you go into that particular uh, Scripture, it, it suggests it's a nation to the north, Magog. Yes. Gog is, mm-hmm. the, is the leader. And, well, I would argue, uh, a good friend of mine was, uh, a year ago this month, was down in Cairo, and he was meeting with uh, General Sisi, President Sisi. By the way, he, uh, Sisi is a graduate of uh, the War College where I teach, and 
CC was telling my general friend, he said, you know, um, Erdogan, of course the president of Turkey today, uh, is um, he wants to be the caliph, and he wants to establish the Muslim caliphate. You know, you heard yes. all about what ISIS wanted to do. Well, you know, this is President Sisi to a, a very reliable friend of mine, and I have no doubt that this is what happened. Now, if you follow what Erdogan has been doing uh, over the last years, you begin to you know, say, you know, that may, might make some sense. Here, you know, everybody's uh, been talking about uh, this uh, Jamal Khashoggi, uh, who was murdered by the, the 16 henchmen sent up from Riyadh, whether they were sent up by uh, MBS or whatever, I don't know. Um, probably. Uh, that's a guess. Uh, however, Erdogan's been playing this like a, you know, like a Stradivarius uh, because it's a competition against Riyadh uh, and him who's going to take over the, the Sunni world. Um, you know, he's, he... Uh, Erdogan, he's been dedicating mosques in various places. He was just up in um, Kern, uh, Cologne, Germany. What did he do? He, yeah, he visited with Angela Merkel, but he also dedicated a giant mosque, the largest one in all of Germany. Now, that seems to be atypical of a true politician, but he's not. He's not a true politician. He's a mixture. And, of course, he does have an ambition not only to be the caliph, but he wants to fulfill this by uh, 2023. Why? Because the modern Turkey under Ataturk was formed in 1923. And so he has this ambition that he's going to have uh, this grandiose power base by that time. Now, I say all that because Turkey is due north of Israel. Mm -hmm. It is quite possible that Turkey is Gog or Magog and that uh, either... Erdogan or a descendant of Erdogan, uh, a future caliph that follows him, uh, could be Gog. But we really don't know. Uh, you, know I, you, can, you can interpret it in various and sundry ways. Others say it's the, you know, a nation north of the Black Sea. Of course, that would be either Ukraine, which is really the breadbasket of Russia, or modern Russia, Moscow. Uh, a lot of people come to that conclusion. Uh, what's not in doubt is that something's going to come out of the north and it's going to be problematic. And the other one, of course, is in Revelation. It talks about uh, these armies coming from the east and, you know, you know this giant, two, what, 200 million man army. And everybody thinks, yes. well, you know, well, certainly uh, any country that has a billion point three like China, they could generate a, a 200 million man army. Well, China's army is large. But it's only a few million. It's certainly not 200 million. Um, so I, I'm not I'm not sure how to interpret that. Plus, the fact is that this army supposedly crosses over uh, the Euphrates uh, just north of uh, Baghdad, apparently along the old Silk Road. And the, of course, it, it describes in the scripture that it, the it's going to be a dry bedded. Euphrates. Now I've been to the Euphrates, right north of Baghdad. So it's a it's a real river, and it's described as you know basically much like the Red Sea was parted before the uh, as Moses led the people of Israel across, escaping from uh, the Egyptian 
Pharaoh, well, this army of 200 million allegedly is going to cross over north of Baghdad and on the dry riverbed of the Euphrates. Don't know. It, it, it sounds interesting why a modern army of that size would even consider marching from downtown Beijing all the way to downtown Jerusalem. I don't know. Uh, I've been in those deserts. It's not a pleasant place. But, you know, that's the nature <laughs> yeah. of what we're dealing with. So there, there's a lot of speculation. Uh, you know, you could. Uh, there's, there's an interesting when you, uh, statement by uh, Alexander Dugan, who's a Russian philosopher, and also a bosom buddy of Vladimir Putin. And he also happens to uh, have some interesting views. And he's, he's written about uh, his good friend Putin, and he calls him the Eastern Orthodox Tsar. And he says that he is leading a war against the Antichrist. And what he cites is a term out of Second Thessalonians 2, 6, and 7. Uh, and the term in Greek, it's uh, katechon. Uh, it's interpreted as uh, basically one who withholds. And so if you read the Second Thessalonians 2 uh, verse, it says, for the mystery of lawlessness is already uh, working. Uh, and what apparently Alexander Dugan refers to as Putin at war against the Antichrist is that the Antichrist is the secularized West, which I find a fascinating concept because apparently in the propaganda that you know keeps Putin uh, a rather popular nationalist in his country is the fact that you know he's standing up for motherhood apple pie and you know the greatness of the Russian people and they like that uh, and of course we're the boogeyman uh, in the West and you know our moral decadence, and they get to point it out, and the people say, "Yeah, this this guy's uh, our savior," and you know it's it's not you know un, unknown that he is referred to by certain clerics over there as the Russian savior. So you've got all these these issues that are brewing here uh, when we talk about not only biblical prophecy but modern day interpretation of those prophecies. Boy, you just give me a lot to consider. Let me process this for just a second. Okay. Now, what what is their opinion when you talk, you know, to to people on that side of the aisle? What is their opinion of what you just said? What is their opinion of the prophecy? Since it seems to be, you know, pointing directly at them. Well, some of their clerics actually believe that we're at the end times. You know the. You know, they really do. And, you know, I'm no you know, diviner of the future necessarily, uh, but uh, certainly when you, when you, if you take Ezekiel 38, if you take Revelation 16, you take some of the other you know, you know, scriptures in mind, it, you know, you can, you can make a, a case that yes, you know, we, we're, we're rapidly moving toward uh, cognitive dissidence as a as a world. Uh, we up seems to be down, and down seems to be up. Um, and you know, a guy that is saying that he knows uh, the direction to take his country, like Putin and like Xi. That's why authoritarians, when there's a lot of confusion and there's a you know an attack on self confidence, they seem to thrive. 
we've seen this historically. You know, you can you saw it under Adolf Hitler after World War One. He was disgusted with what was going on, and he, he stood up the Third Reich, and he was incredibly popular. You know, he led to some pretty harsh results, but. You know, we've seen this with the likes of Napoleon. We see, saw it with Alexander the Great. We've just seen it throughout the ages. So you've got certain people that are very influential, and I think, you know, certainly Putin is very influential in his country, and he has the allegiance of those people, and President Xi seems to have the allegiance of, you know, certainly the 50 million communists that are part of the yes. Communist Party of China. So, one one last question for me, then I promise I'll shut up for a little while, because you've got me so intrigued. <laughs> Why is it, though, that we seem... Okay, let, let's switch it over from Russia to China now, because China has been all over the news with its style of censorship and how they're having seminars, you know, teaching American companies how to censor us, much like them. Is, okay. this, all, is, is this all part of the plan? I mean... Uh, now, I know it's going to sound like a stupid question, but have we been suckered by sending a lot of our business over to China? Now they have it. They're teaching them a certain methodology and then sending it back, and we're swallowing certain philosophies. Oh, yeah. We're, we're incredibly naive as a country. You know, we, you know when, when uh, Kissinger you know, first went over there and he ushered in Nixon and they... You know, they made happy and glad with you know, the likes of uh, Cho and Lai, and as a result, you know, we started this great relationship that led to basically us trusting them and them robbing us blind of, you know, all our goodies. We, our companies go over there, and you know, they're suckered into these uh, Chinese uh programs that they have to compromise their intellectual property and they do it left and right otherwise they won't be able to to make a dime over there uh and they've done this through the years now what they're doing now and i mentioned this earlier the belt and roads initiative which was started in 2013 by president xi it's a great idea it's all about building infrastructure but really behind the veil it's all about developing leverage, geopolitical leverage across the world in order for them to stipulate to you know, countries that become beholden to them because they've built a road or a stadium or you know, an electric system or whatever, that you either, we're going to call your debt or you do what we say you're going to do. And oh, by the way, in a lot of the ports like Sri Lanka's port or Suez or Panama Canal and you know, there's 68 countries involved at this point in 900 different projects. Uh, if you have access to these facilities, the PLA, People's Liberation Army, Navy, um, they're there. Uh, and they're using these facilities for their own nefarious purposes. So, uh, and it's not just that. Uh, they're trying to persuade countries to turn over uh, their Internet programs to them. Now, you know what mm -hmm. they've done with Google, or trying to do, uh, and you know that you know they, they peer under the skirts of absolutely every uh, piece of intellectual uh, interconnect, internet you know, connections in China itself. Well, 
by building their own infrastructure on these countries that are beholding to them, then they uh, have they get these leaders in those countries to cooperate with them. You know, what was it today? I was looking at uh, how uh, a lot of information that's on certain uh, networks is funneled through servers in China in these large Chinese corporations. And, of course, they're filtered uh, before they're routed back to the country in which they were intended to go to. Uh, a technique, yes, but a very dangerous technique because they they sift out uh, information that they're interested in, and they've they've been very very smart about it. Uh, and of course, they have an army of of hackers. They have a, a new organization they just stood up two years ago that oversees cyber and space, uh, electronic warfare, uh, and maybe one other area. And they it's kind of outside the military chain of command it works directly uh for uh the senior leaders and it, it's sort of like uh the NSA and CIA and a couple of other agencies kind of you know morph together uh to do the types of things and the bidding that uh, the leadership over there wants to do and they're doing a great job for China. Hmm. So how do you see um the relationship with Saudi Arabia? And how do you see that and how it's going to affect this three-way Cold War? Well, the Saudis, of course, uh, because they're in OPEC and they really control OPEC, uh, the Saudis, are they, most of their attention is drawn across the Persian Gulf at uh, Tehran. Um, you know, the, the love-hate relationship that dates back to, you know, Muhammad's uh, great-grandson, and that's when the split was, and they just hate one another, uh, and they'll continue to hate one another. And so uh, that's why we have the conflict in Yemen. You know, the Houthis are fueled by you know the Ayatollah and his Quds force, and they give them rockets to attack the Saudis, and of course to kill you know the poor Yemenis. Um, and of course the Saudis, uh, who have our equipment, and we train them, but they don't pay attention in class, so they go over and they drop bombs, but they miss a lot of times and they kill innocent people. And so you have that civil war that's what? It's lost 10,000 people and millions of people are uh, facing starvation. Uh, and of course, uh, you know, Congressman out there, Smith, uh, and I think rightly, is beginning to say, you know, maybe we shouldn't be helping those Saudis to you know, go in and kill so so many Yemenis. Well, whatever. That's that's mostly about Riyadh versus Tehran. Then, of course, you see what's going on in Damascus, and of course, you have you know, Iranian Quds force. You have Iranian regulars that are uh, fueling that civil war. They've got a a foothold there, and of course, they have their proxies, Hezbollah, in south of the Latani River uh, and north of the Israeli border. Uh, that will continue to build up, and before long we'll probably have the, the third battle uh, between Israel and Hezbollah. We've already seen a lot of drone attacks, and, and the Israelis, of course, have been striking as many of the Iranians as they can, and you know, they've upset um, the Russians because, you know, what was it, a month ago, uh, Israel was over there uh, attacking one of the Iranian uh, facilities, and they drew Syrian um, fire from 
what was it? Uh, it was one of the surface-to-air missile systems, uh, 202 mm-hmm. or whatever. And um, <laughs> they shot down a, um, a Russian reconnaissance plane instead of a F-16 that the Israelis were uh, you know, flying. And, of course, uh, you know, the um, Russian prime minister, uh, Medvedev, or was it uh, Lavrinov, one of them, called down and, you know, really yelled at uh, Netanyahu and said, look, you know, you set this guy up, uh, set the Syrians up to fire, and you knew that they wouldn't be able to hit your jets, but they hit one of our slow-moving reconnaissance aircraft. So that's bad, bad sort of thing. Well, it's, it's a messy battlefield there. And so you have that is sort of a proxy war because the Saudis are, are fueling the, the Arab dissidents. Uh, and, of course, Erdogan has his own uh, beef there against the Kurds. and They don't want a, a, a modern Kurdistan. Of course, you can blame us for that because we promised the Kurds at the end of World War One, we were going to help them uh, unify and have their own country, and we've reneged on that, you know, in spades. So you have all of that uh, mixed-up battlefield, but it's really between Iran and the Saudis. And, of course, the Saudis have good friends and the Pakistanis who they bought off, and they probably have some of the, the, the nasty weapons that uh, the Pakistanis have been using. So that's of some concern, I think, geopolitically to us. So you really have a, a Sunni-Shia war uh, by you know, proxy uh, that's going to probably continue for some good long time. Now, the Saudis, you know, they'll use their oil wealth. I, I know uh, Mohammed Salman is trying to modernize that country. Um, it doesn't help that he uses his thugs to murder people, if that's the case, but uh, he wants to you know, allegedly allow women to drive. So that's what he's known for here recently. And he also wants to build modern cities on the west coast of the Arabian uh, Peninsula. Uh, he wants to, you know, find new businesses that can employ his mostly underemployed uh, population that have been dependent upon the, the government logrists because of the oil wealth. But at one point that's going to dry up and all he'll be left with is a bunch of sand and salt water. And so hopefully... Uh, for his benefit, or at least you know, his predecessor, you know, they can figure out what to do. Well, and hopefully not a nuclear bomb. No. <laughs> well, you know, money buys uh, a lot of things in the world, and you know, keep in mind, Pakistan has, uh, by the unclassified sources, uh, maybe 200. Uh, do you not think that the Pakistanis, who we can't trust anyway, uh, and are now the becoming the bosom buddies of uh, Vladimir Putin. You know, they just were doing some exercises there in Pakistan, and, of course, they pr- continue to provide harbor to the, you know, the Haqqani network and, of course, al-Qaeda in the, in the mountains there. Uh, do you not think that they would sell something? You know, how do you think you know, uh, Mr. Khan, who was really the father of the modern Pakistani nuclear weapon. He worked in the Netherlands, learned the technology of enrichment. You know, the Chinese sold them a plan, and they kind of cobbled together their own little weapon system, and you know, they've been testing these things, and you know, I think that there's really you know, nothing that would keep them from selling to their best buddies over in uh, Riyadh a weapon system. 
so that's that's a real possibility and something we're concerned about. You know, at, at some points we we the United States have considered uh, going in there and and seizing their weapons to make sure they're safe uh, because we were concerned about some of these terrorist organizations going in and taking over uh, some of these facilities. We're not even sure they have what we call permissive access links. Uh, I used to work with nuclear weapons a little bit, and there are these, basically it's a padlock, a very special type of padlock that keeps you know, just anybody from coming off the street and blowing up a nuclear weapon. Um, so we're not even sure they have that. Uh, so that's, that's of a geopolitical national security concern uh, with the PACs, uh, who we're no longer best friends with, uh, but they are best friends with uh, uh, MS, uh, MBS and you know, the, the likes of King Salman. So, so at the end of the day, what do you think is best for us to do? What, what's best to happen? And, and did this election help any? <laughs> well, it, it helped the stock <laughs> market question. today. The stock market did, did great. You know, I, I think we should have an election every day if it's going to do this well. Um, <laughs> you know, I think I, I happen to like what uh, Trump's administration has done in terms of a national security strategy, national defense strategy. I think it's, it's, it's a clear-headed approach that considers economics part of national security it considers you know, the cyber part of national security it considers you know people that pull you know triggers on weapons national security so it's a broader definition as to what is our national security interest uh, you know i don't i don't want us to go to war you know the, the, the last people that want to go you know, shoot at people and get killed are soldiers who actually know something about what they're talking about uh, and so what we need to do is to be strong enough so that the likes of uh, you know, Vladimir Putin and Xi uh, don't come after us. Now, I, you know, in spite of some of the issues that perhaps and the criticism Mr. Trump has had with his dealings with Kim Jong-un of North Korea, at least this, this young man has not been you know, blowing up nuclear weapons in his tunnels or firing these errant missiles over the last year. Uh, he, he stopped doing that when we started to engage with him. And there's a good chance that um, we can entice him to you know, put away those nasty things and to, to join the rest of civilization. Well, I think we need to be obviously more nuanced when it comes to Putin. Um, you know, I, I do believe that uh, Trump's meeting with Putin uh, in Helsinki in July uh, he didn't announce a lot of what he said, except that he did talk about nuclear weapons, and I know both of them are concerned about that. Uh, but I think that uh, we, there, there, is a, there is hope that we can get along with the Russians, but we have to you know, be smarter about it. Uh, you know, the, the sanctions are really bothering them, uh, and I understand that. And, of course, they're targeted sanctions, much like what we're doing with the, the Iranians. But we're also sanctioning the, the Chinese. The Chinese are going to, like I say, um, they're going to be more ideological and more of a threat very long term. Russia, I think, will, you know, we can bring them into a very different orbit. But it, President Xi uh, and his very ambitious global views are going to be far more of a challenge. So we have to be 
and I think Trump is right in terms of economics, you know, we need to level the playing field here. And uh, in spite of uh, their rhetoric over Beijing, we are beginning to see uh, some accommodation there. So that's going to help our economy, and it will help to kind of, you know, smooth things else elsewhere. But uh, they are also very hegemonic. You know, look what they've done in the South China Sea, 3,400 acres of islands. They put airfields and ports and cruise missiles and the like. So they're, they're expanding out. You know, I think, you know, I can see 50 years from now they're going to have a much broader grasp of an influence around the world than they currently have. And, you know, we can either learn to live with that and recognize that they're a peer competitor uh, that does not necessarily mean that we have to be adversaries, you know, shaking our weapons at one another, uh, but we have to be smart about it because it's not going to be easy. Well, that being said, <laughs> well, um, so w w what, did, what do you think of the election, actually? Just uh, a quick quick note on that. And, um, oh, I Anything, anything, um, do you see anything positive coming out of it? Well, I saw a lot of things positive coming out of it. Um, you know, one, we're still a country. We didn't fall apart as a direct result of being divided uh, politically. And I find that good news. Um, you know, I, I've been in other countries around the world where, you know, you would have such divisions within the population that you know, things resorted to blows and even worse. So, you know, we've lived through another election, a rather contentious one. Uh, but, you know, now we have a divided government, and apparently Wall Street was excited about it with a 500-plus uh, increase. You know, I think that with a slim majority, the Democrats in uh, the House will have to, uh, because they don't, they don't have an iron grip on every single one of their own party, uh, there's going to have to be some modicum of, Cooperation. I think infrastructure cooperation. I think that you know we ought to deal with health care. Uh, we, we need to deal with uh, a number of other uh, rather significant issues. I, certainly, as somebody that works in the Pentagon every day, I'm concerned about uh, the Budget Control Act of uh, 2010 because uh, we had a compromise a couple of years ago that kind of you know pushed back uh, all the ugliness that can come when you uh, stop. Uh, and you know, the spending levels. Uh, we are recovering our readiness after uh, Mr. Obama, in, in my estimation, you know, neglected uh, a lot of our systems. Um, and, of course, the, the threats are very, very real, as I've pointed out or tried to over the last uh, few minutes with you. So uh, I'm hoping that we'll, we'll be able to deal with that. Uh, I hope that by being strong, uh, we won't have to have a repeat of past wars. And, and I think that um, there's a possibility that the Democrats and Republicans can put aside their ugly words and, and somehow uh, collaborate uh, together on a brighter future. So, um, and I think that it's going to be easier for Mr. Trump now that he has a little more than you know, a split uh, Senate. He has a, a couple extra votes, so he'll probably be able to get some of the people that are waiting in the, the aisles to be uh, confirmed so he can fill uh, a lot of the positions that he would like to fill. 
Amen to that. Um, let me just amend something that you are saying and, and bring two points together. You know, I'm I'm very relieved to see that we are rebuilding our military. We're starting to get our tech industry involved again and and rebuild some of our defenses. While at the same time, like you said, North Korea at this point seems to be playing ball with us and you know re reducing their nuclear capabilities so far. You know, by all appearances, uh, how sustainable do you think that that is, though, uh, given the fact that our government is changing and the way that we do things is changing? Well, Kim Jong-un, I think, is a rational player. I don't think he is a, a crazy guy. Um, I think that he is getting his direction from President Xi in Beijing, and there's plenty of evidence that every time he he you know, gets uh, a message from Washington, he either phones or goes and visits uh, President Xi. And says, oh, okay, agreed. What mentor, you know, asking his mentor what he ought to do. And so Xi is uh, the ultimate uh, manipulator behind the scene here. He, you know, Kim Jong-un's just the puppet. Uh, however, uh, I, I think that uh, if we can provide a, a good enough package of guarantees, uh, he just wants his regime to survive. Uh, she wants us out of Korea. We have 28,500 of our soldiers there, a lot of our weapons. Uh, they'd love to see us out. And, you know, of course, the South Korean, you know, President Moon wants us out too, uh, given his politics, but he, he knows he, he needs to keep us there, at least for right now, because of the threat. So I, I think that if we continue with Mike Pompeo meeting with his counterpart and, you know, President uh, Trump meeting with Kim Jong-un, uh, and we may, uh, with enough goodies in the offering, uh, begin to, you know, really ratchet down the tension. We've already agreed military to military to, uh, you know, kind of tear down a lot of these facilities, guard towers that I used to know many years ago over there. Uh, we're canceling exercises. So we're kind of slowly beginning to soften you know, what's going on there with, a, with an eye, though, on, you know, what their real behavior is. Because uh, we obviously don't want to do it too quickly, so it endangers not only South Korea, but endangers Japan, which is nervous about this, and, of course, our, our longer-term interest. Uh, it's nice to be able to kind of look over the uh, Sea of uh, Japan and, and look over at the, uh, the Chinese on the other side of uh, what is it, the Korean Sea, and, mm -hmm. you know, kind of anticipate what they may be doing and keep them wary of what we're doing there. Well, well we are running out of time quickly. Um, we want to thank you for being on the show, and we'd love to do it again. Your book, yeah. Alliance of Evil, will be posted on our website, as well as we have a page up there for yourself, uh, for guests that we've had, and your information so if people want to get a hold of you one click great i appreciate that well our guest has been robert vaginis thank you very much for being here it's been my pleasure thanks for having me to find out more about our show guests or to listen to past shows from our archive please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com show's over for now was it as good for you as it was for me well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.